Our sermon text this morning is Ezra 1, 1 through 3, if you'd like to join me in your Bibles. Ezra 1, 1 through 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever who is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Thank you. Love, I love baby dedications, and uh, and it's just sweet to see all those families. So, um, but let me be now the first to welcome you to our fall series, Ezra and Nehemiah. And I would guess many of you have not heard a sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe, um, maybe there are some. Certainly. It has a, a reputation of a sermon series that you preach before a building project. It gets this kind of like behind the scenes look of God's people building a temple, reestablishing themselves in the land, building this wall. There's leaders delegating, everyone's working together. And you can see like if a church is about ready to break ground on a modern construction project, how that just fits perfectly. And then you might be thinking, like you're looking around, you're like, man, every Sunday it seems just a little more full in here. And so maybe the elders were thinking of Ezra and Nehemiah and thinking, oh, well, there might be some changes in the building needed to come. And so maybe we should do a series uh, on Ezra and Nehemiah. And if that is what you're thinking, I just want to say you will be very disappointed in this series because that's not at all actually what was in our minds when we came to Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's not because there aren't leadership principles that you can get from Ezra and Nehemiah or that there are ideas about construction projects and what that looks like. That's certainly there. You might call them secondary kind of points or applications, but really at the end of the day, this book is not principally about a construction project of a temple, it's actually about the need for a better temple for Jesus. And in fact, not only is it not principally about a construction project, it actually goes to show that every one of those projects that Israel undertakes falls short. They rebuild the temple and it's lackluster and the presence of the Lord doesn't fill it. And they recreate the walls and they don't keep out the enemies. And over and over, it's actually a book about disappointment. And God's people put all of this into uh, work and sweat and were able to look at their buildings and realize they needed something more. And so actually, Ezra Nehemiah, really it's an invitation to all of you who know this feeling of disappointment. Like maybe you know the feeling that you've been longing for a spouse and yet you don't have anyone. Or you, you know, you've been, I've, I've been waiting for a baby and I don't have one. Or I've been waiting for something and you, you, it's just nowhere in your reach. 
then you just know this feeling of disappointment. And Ezra Nehemiah is also an invitation to those who know the battle against sin. If you know the struggle against selfishness or pride or arrogance, or maybe you know what it's like to fall into the cycle that we'll see where God's people hear the word of God and they're so eager to respond and they respond and say, we will follow you, Lord, only to find out in the very next chapter that they fall right back into their sin. And so you know that cycle and struggle to fight sin. It's like Ezra Nehemiah has this welcome sign of hope to point you to where you need to go, if that's you. And at the end of the day, truly, Ezra Nehemiah, it's, it's an invitation to a thirsty soul who has tasted here on earth that there is something lacking. Like There must be something more. You've tasted joy. You know God's glory, but you yearn for more. And you know the fullness has not come yet because what Ezra Nehemiah is, is it is a book that exists to point us to Jesus. It exists to point us to the day when we will see the final, true, full temple of the Lord. It will descend. There'll be a new heavens and new earth and God's glory will fill the earth. There will be no need for the sun because his glory will shine so bright. And so Ezra Nehemiah is a reminder to those who are waiting in hope. And so that's what this book is. Ezra Nehemiah, it tells the story of God restoring his people to the temple, to the word, to the land, to show their lasting need for the promised Messiah's full rescue. So with that in mind, I'd love to pray as we get ready to start this series. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first few verses as an intro into not only Ezra Nehemiah, but hopefully even as an intro into just reading the Old Testament or any Old Testament book for that matter. But I'd love to pray. And then we're going to look at the text together and kind of chart our way through this book. So let's pray. Father, thank you for hope. Hope for us who so know disappointment and know what it means to battle sin and know what it means to taste joy and long for more. So thank you that you have not left us without hope, but you've left us with promise. We've seen your son and we know his final return is coming. And so make us a people who wait on your promises with sure hope. Remind us of that this morning. Remind us of that in this series on Ezra Nehemiah. Meet us now as we turn to the first verses in this book. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you haven't yet, turn to Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bibles. Uh, you'll, you'll find it after 1st, 2nd Chronicles in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Ezra 1. And so I want to start us this morning by reading Ezra 1, 1 again. Here it is. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. So now already, first lines in the book, you might be feeling that we're a bit of foreigners in a foreign land. To Ezra and Nehemiah and their audience, it wasn't foreign. These people were people they knew, but for us, most of us, certainly, you read like this first line, Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia. And you think like, who is that? Like what, when, when are we talking? And it, I mean, we're kind of in the years, like you might say 550 to 4, 
hundreds, like that's BC. But, you know, I, I, we probably all don't just immediately know that. And then you read this, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. And you might know the name Jeremiah. You might know the book that he wrote in the Bible, but it talks about a proclamation he made. But what proclamation? To whom? What is he talking about? And so here we are, foreigners, if you will, in this foreign land, needing really at the end of the day, a map so that we can understand what it is that we're stepping into. Where in this story are we? So you might say in some ways that this sermon is an exercise in cartography because we need to make a map. We need to kind of figure out and orient ourselves into this story. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to um, create a map in, in three phases. And so first we're going to get some context and then we're going to get some contours and then uh, we're going to get the compass, right? So first we're going to get context. Like we need to understand not actually first the story of Ezra and Nehemiah principally. We'll get there. That's contours. Let's first understand the whole Bible storyline. We need to understand where this fits in and all that has happened prior to this book. So we need context. And then we need contours. We need to understand What's the theme? Where is Ezra and Nehemiah going so that we can understand as we begin to read the book what we're expecting? And then we need a compass. Every map has got north so that you can orient yourself. And as readers of the Old Testament, this side of Christ, we look to Christ as our compass. So that as we read this book, we look to Christ as the orientation for all that we're reading. So that's where we're going to go. But first, we're going to start with step one, context. Now, we'll go back again, um, and you'll see in our text, in the first year of King uh, of of Cyrus, King of Persia. You don't see it in English, but uh, in Hebrew, this book actually begins with the word and. It's because it's picking up in the middle of a story. Like, if you just start a conversation and, like, you're assuming your reader knows what's gone on before. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start, and we're going to spend a decent amount of time on this because I think it's pretty foreign for many of us, this whole context. So if Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of expecting, we're picking up on the story, let's get the storyline right and make sure that when he says, and in the first year of King uh, of Cyrus, King of Persia, that we we know, okay, he's picking up, this is why this matters. So what I'm going to do is there's a theologian named Jim Hamilton and uh, he gives an analogy and I'm just going to kind of build off of his analogy. And what he does is he um, he kind of joins Shakespeare, if you will, in seeing the world as a stage. And so we're going to uh, break down this story as if uh, God, in this illustration, God creates a stage. He creates this grand theater. Now, of course, in reality, God created an entire world. But in order to try to maybe hopefully simplify the story so we can follow it, we're going to say God creates this theater. And so let's just begin there. He creates this great theater. And in this theater... He puts a garden in one of the corners, and in this garden, he marks it off as a safe place, a place where God's people in peace could dwell with him. But what happens in this now play that's drama that's unfolding is God's people rebel. And so God takes his people, Adam and Eve at that point, but his people out of the garden, and now he makes a promise to his people. He says, one day I'm going to raise up, I'm going to raise up an offspring and this offspring will defeat the enemy and he will make it so that you can be welcomed back into this garden. So yes, they've been kicked out of the garden, but he gives a promise that one day you'll be restored back in. And so this drama unfolds a little bit more and God chooses a person. And through that person, he actually takes a little nation 
starts out little and he gets bigger and bigger and bigger, this nation of Israel. And he says, through this nation and through a tribe and through a people, I'm going to raise up this promised one that'll get you back into the land. And so what you see is though that as this nation begins to grow, shockingly, what actually happens is they fall into slavery under the hand of a larger nation, Egypt. So here's Israel in slavery And yet, God has not forgotten his promise. And so what he does is, against all odds, he rescues this nation out of slavery from Egypt. He takes them out of the hand of the enemy, and he brings them back into a garden-like place, the promised land. And what we call that is you call it the Exodus. And it's really important themes throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So now... God's people are back in a garden-like area, the promised land, and God gives them instruction. He says, build a temple, build a tabernacle, build a temple, and this is going to be the place where God's people are living at peace and are therefore the temple, are, are meeting with God, and God's glory is filling this temple. And so they build this temple, and it's beautiful, and just like the first people in the first garden, God's people rebel. So what happens? They're kicked out of the garden. This time, they're not in slavery to Egypt. It's a new nation, Babylon. Babylon comes in, takes over, and just in case God's people miss what's going on, the significance of their sin that's got them out of the garden, he he moves Babylon to destroy the temple. Once again, now, God's people are out of this garden place in slavery, But then God sends messengers, both in their rebellion and now in their slavery. He sends messengers to come on the stage. We call those messengers prophets. One of those prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Prophets who came and prophesied, Israel, because of your sin, you're going to be kicked out of this land. They talked about the consequence of their sin. But they also reminded God's people of a day when God would send a Messiah to rescue his people once again to take them from slavery, out of slavery, into a garden where they would be with God and meet with him. So they prophesied of this day. And what we get then, finally, when we land in Ezra and Nehemiah, is that right before this moment, before Ezra and Nehemiah opens, God's people are in slavery. They're in slavery. Babylon is ruling over them. They're not in the land. They're in captivity. Until the day came when Persia conquered Babylon. And on that day, a king sat on the throne And he gave a declaration that God's people could return back to a garden area, to a promised land, and be restored back to the place that God had promised. And that's now where we get, and Cyrus, the king of Persia. This is a big moment for God's people. Prophecy after prophecy has come so that you get things like this in Jeremiah, which is what our text says. That the word of Jeremiah, here's one of them, there's many of them. For thus says the Lord, this is years before, 70 at least, 70 years are completed for Babylon, that's who was controlling God's people. I will visit you, God, I, God, will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this 
place, this land. And then we get, of course, this then opening of our text. Cyrus, king of Persia, comes on the scene. So by understanding, this is just a snapshot of the storyline, like the whole biblical theology could go all day, but this is just a snapshot. And we're going to get more of that as it goes through Ezra and Nehemiah. But you can see how understanding the context of what's going on, we now understand more of what's happening in our opening line in the first year of King of, of Cyrus, King of Persia. What this means is that in this moment, God's people are hearing of the good news that they get to go back into the land. And it's coming with expectation. God has promised this day and he has promised that it would come. And so then it gives significance to this is, this is what we read. So we go now to verses 2 and 3, Ezra 1, verses 2 and 3. Here's what we read. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so it's not only do they get to go back to the land, but they get to go and rebuild this temple, signifying God dwelling yet once again with his people. So whenever you approach an Old Testament book, whether it's Ezra, Nehemiah, or any other book, as foreigners in a foreign land, you've got to begin with some context to understand where we're going. Because the thing is, the authors kind of assume that we know the context, which is why they begin just going right into the story. It's like this. If I said to you, man, the Chiefs not off to a great start this year. If you watch football, you know what I'm talking about. Because uh, you would know that the Chiefs lost to the Lions in the first NFL game of the year. And you would also know that Patrick Mahomes is said to be you know, predicted to be the MVP who's going to take his team to the Super Bowl again, and they lose their first game. Now, if you don't know football, you'd have to do a little digging to figure that out. I don't know football. I had to dig to figure that out. I don't watch football, actually. So it might think that I would have just known that. But most of you are laughing because you know I didn't know that. And I had to read an article to figure that out. I didn't know that she's fun. So I don't have any alliance to the Chiefs, but the reality is that took some work for me to figure out, okay, but I figured it out, and therefore I could come to you and say the Chiefs aren't off to a great start, and if you know what I'm talking about, you immediately fill in all of those details. So just like when you come to a book and it says, and, in, in, you know, when King Cyrus comes to power, and, and you, you, you want these themes coming to fill your mind, and so you, you do. You have to do a little digging to get some context to understand um, what's going on. But he, here's the thing. Uh, God has given us the entire Bible to feed our souls. So I think that kind of work to get that context, it's worth it. So I just want to give you one text. Here's Romans, how it begins. So opening uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, listen to this, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That means that God has given us an Old Testament full of prophets and writings and teachings that point us to the gospel. Or when Timothy says all scripture is breathed out by God, he has in his mind certainly books like Ezra and Nehemiah and the Old Testament. So I heard it put this way. Um, what we call the Old Testament, so the, four, the first three-fourths of our Bible, it was the only Bible that Jesus had. 
So books like Genesis, like Deuteronomy, like Isaiah or Ezra Nehemiah, those were the Bible that Jesus opened up to people to show that he was the Messiah. It's what he showed when he said, look, like, this is, this is who I am. See, all of these prophets foretold of me. And he used it to guard against doctrine and error. And he was convinced that that three-fourths of our Bible was needed for us to know and treasure and needed to fill our souls. So in digging into the Old Testament and starting a series on Ezra and Nehemiah, I know that it comes with challenges. Comes with understanding a whole storyline, and it's going to take some work as we dig into this book. But here's what we believe at Table Rock we believe that this book has gospel that Table Rock needs. Even 2,000 years later, we need the gospel that is contained in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so that's why. We're going to do the hard work of being cartographers, starting with context, getting contours, getting a compass, and doing it over and over and over every week in order that we might see and treasure Jesus through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's context. Admittedly, we spent most of our time there because I think it helps lay some foundations as we come to this book. But I, wanted, I do want it to continue in our journey of making a map to not just say context. We also need the contours. We need to make the roads and make the map of what is Ezra and Nehemiah specifically. So if we understand where it fits in the storyline, it's actually the last movement in the history of Israel before we get to the New Testament. Um, and so what, what does it say? What does it talk about? And so that's where we go to our second movement in making a map. Let's go from context to contours. And so look now again to verses two and three as we kind of set the contours of Ezra and Nehemiah. Here's what we read again. Cyrus, king of Persia, um, he says this, the, the Lord, the, the king, the God of heaven, he's given me all these kingdoms and he's done what? He has said <clears throat> for Cyrus to build him a house in Jerusalem, build God a house in Jerusalem. And what he does is he says this, he says, let any who, who have this one as their God return back to Jerusalem and rebuild this house. So what we see in the opening of these two verses, really, I mean, at the end of the day, is some of the outline of the whole book. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which admittedly is two books in our Bible. It's just one book in Hebrew which is why we're doing as one series. But Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of God's people going back home, going back to the land, going back to this garden-like place. And what it is, is it's a book about them rebuilding. And you see in this text that it's first going to be about them rebuilding the temple, or in the words of our text here, the house of the Lord. That's where we're going to start. And what you could do as you look at the whole landscape and we try to make all of the contours and maps and like roads of Ezra and Nehemiah, you could say there's this intro. And then what happens is, is it recounts three different groups of people coming back into the land. And then there is this commitment to follow the Lord. And then there's this final chapter where after they committed to follow the Lord, they fall away. And in the middle, these three movements, three groups of people each come back and they each do something different in the land. They complete a different project. The first, the temple. The second people restore back the priesthood and the law. And the third group of people build the, the wall around Jerusalem. Now, 
that's kind of a breakdown if you were to, to see the structure of Ezra Nehemiah. So as we kind of then therefore take a, as far back a zoom as we can to say, what does this book do? Here is my attempt at a one sentence summary of the whole book. So um, you can uh, build your own as we go. And uh, I'm going to do this one. There we go. Uh, one sentence summary. Here is my attempt to summarize the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I may tweak it as we go, um, but here we go. God restores his people to the temple, word, and land to show their lasting need for the promised Messiah's full rescue. So he, he restores God's people and they rebuild the temple. They rebuild worship. They put in priests and they put in the law and all their festivals and, and they are back in the land and they put this wall around it and every one of those things falls short. So God restores them just as he's promised, but it's done in a way to say, wow, this is not what we had hoped. It shows a lack in their lasting need for the promised Messiah. And so at the end of the day, when you look at the story of Ezra and Nehemiah in this drama, in this story that's been taking place, it's really, truly a tragedy. God's people hear Cyrus's decree, go back with such high expectations and every one of them falls short. It's not the second exodus that the prophets had been talking about. It falls short. It's not the restoration that they have been longing for. This peace and final security in the land to be with their God. It is part one of their restoration. But part one is so lackluster because it's pointing to there needs to be a part two. There's more to the drama. This is a tragedy. There's supposed to be a happy ending. And God's people are meant to see there's lack or longing. And it's pointing them to a hope that God has promised. A Messiah who would come, who would truly rescue God's people. Which is why I said, this is a book that this morning, if you're here and you know what it means to lack and to long, like when you know that feeling of disappointment, you put hope in something and it falls short and you just feel in your bones just aching like, God, it's not supposed to be this way. That's what God's people felt in this book. God, this is not what you promised. And God gave them that moment, not that they would just be stuck and be stuck in despair and desponding and desperation. He gave it that in those moments of disappointment, that they would look to their heavenly father who had not forgotten them, but had promised that he would rescue them. It was something far better and far greater than a Persian king, but his very son. And so for all of you who know that disappointment, this book points you to Jesus. It points you to the fact that God has not forgotten you and he will fulfill your longings if you, if you would turn to him and trust him in the middle of your waiting, in the middle of your longing. So I don't know where you're at this morning. If you're in the middle of that desperation, in the middle of longing, wondering why, oh Lord, would this book, even this morning, be a pointer to hope that God has not forgotten you? He will fulfill his promises and he will meet you. So that's the contour. That's where this book is going. That's where Ezra and Nehemiah is heading. 
And finally, I just want to spend just a few minutes on the compass. And we won't spend a ton of time here, but I want to introduce you to this. The reason is that each week we're going to be spending time showing how Jesus is the compass that orients us to read this book rightly. But I want to just help us see some as just a big picture. So if Ezra Nehemiah is the story of God's people being restored in the land and pointing to the promised Messiah, then what we know then is that the compass is that Messiah. That what we do when you read about all of the shortcomings in this construction project, you read it in light of the fact that God has promised Christ. Now this side of the cross, we know who Jesus is. They were there just waiting and longing. And so I think you remember just Jeremiah's word that we just read, but there's other prophets who talk about this day that's coming. And so I just want to focus in our text just today and then um, show how this compass works. And then I'm going to give you a couple other compasses, compass moments that we're going to have. But um, here's Isaiah talking about this day in Ezra Nehemiah. Here's what he <clears throat> says. This is years before Cyrus comes to power, by the way. Isaiah predicts, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So uh, years, I mean, we're talking decades before Cyrus is even in power. Babylon has not fallen. Isaiah prophesies of a day when Cyrus will come to power and he will be an instrument in the hand of the Lord in order that God's people would come back and build a foundation. And look at the language that it used uses here to describe Cyrus. He's a shepherd, fulfiller of my purpose, the rebuilder of the temple. Okay, so when you hear those words, when you think of the compass, here's what I mean. What I mean by that is those are very messianic words. Those are words that the Bible uses to describe the promised savior of God's people. So when you read that about Cyrus and you turn the page to Ezra Nehemiah and Cyrus, like God has promised a king that he's going to raise up to rescue his people. And here's a king that was prophesied that would be a shepherd and he gets God's people to go back into the land. What you start to think is, is Cyrus the promised one? Is this the king we've been waiting for? That, I think, is what Ezra is trying to get us to start thinking. And then, of course, you read the book and you just realize, no, wait a minute, Cyrus falls short. Well, yes, of course, Cyrus has some similarities to the promised Messiah, but he's not even Israelite. He's certainly not of the tribe of Judah. And so Cyrus must be a pointer. This is a king, but he's a pointer to a coming king. That's what I mean by a compass. So all of a sudden you read of Cyrus, of course, in the context and in the contours, but you must read with this compass that Cyrus is a pointer, not to just himself, but to a king who's better than Cyrus, to Jesus. And this happens over and over and over because what happens is you keep reading the book and you say, okay, Cyrus isn't it, but then you meet Ezra. And Ezra has a ton of similarities to Moses. And you start thinking, wait a minute, is this the one that was promised that would be better than Moses, that is restoring back the word of the Lord and calling his people back? And then you know, no, Ezra falls short. And you find that Ezra is yet again a pointer to one who would come, one who's better than Moses. And then you meet ne Nehemiah and you ask the same questions. And once again, Nehemiah is but a pointer. And so this compass points us and how we are supposed to read all of these people that we see. But it's not just people, it also helps point us 
even to things how are we supposed to read something like the temple being reconstructed and being so lackluster and, and the glory of the Lord not filling the temple. Well, it's, it's meant to be that we would read the temple in light of a compass that a, a temple is coming in the person of Jesus. And then finally, in the new heavens and new earth, where God's temple will literally fill the whole earth. And so then you read things like them building a wall and you look at them building the wall and it falls short and God's enemies come in and, and you think, wait a minute, God's people are actually meant to be in a place where there is no walls, where all the nations come in and they all gather. And it's actually supposed to be that God's people would be in a dwelling place that's so safe that they wouldn't need walls. And so you read about a wall in light of this compass that points you to a coming day. So a coming savior and a coming final day. So that's the compass. Context contours, compass, that's what we need in order to read any book, certainly to read Ezra Nehemiah or any Old Testament books. And so I know that digging into a book like this takes work. It's a lot of work that we just did just to get into the intro of the book. But I think it's worth it. And here's how I put it said. I've heard, I've heard it said this way, um, that you could spend your life using a rake and raking, but you just get leaves. But if you dig, you get diamonds. And so I know it's going to take work to dig and to dig in and to try to understand a foreign land and a foreign people and a story that's old, but I think it's worth it. So let me just say this. Welcome to Ezra Nehemiah. This is a book full of soul-satisfying treasures. It's for people who are waiting. It's for people who are waiting and know the promises of God God and waiting for its final fulfillment. It's for people who are desperate. It's for a desperate people longing for God to fulfill his promises. And so as we come to the book of Ezra Nehemiah and see it's a book for waiting, it's then no surprise that our God who knows what it means for his people to wait on his promises, would, even after Christ came, leave his people with something that they could hold on to in the middle of their waiting. He gave us the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to turn the Lord's Supper. We're going to turn there as people who know the kind of waiting that Ezra Nehemiah's generation knew. And what we do is we come saying, God, we know and we've tasted the promises that have come because of your son, and yet we long for the final day when we will be with you in the new heavens and new earth. And so, to all these waiting people here this morning, I want to invite you to the table. So at Table Rock, what we do is we invite any and all who are trusting in that compass that we're talking about, in Jesus, who are trusting in the Messiah that God sent, and who are putting all of our faith in the promises that he has made. If that's you, if you are a Christian putting your trust in Jesus, you're invited to join us in the Lord's Supper. Um, You don't need to be a member here, but you do need to be believing in Jesus. And if you're not, I would ask, would you go to Christ, not to uh, the table this morning? Um, But if you are, what we're going to do is the communion servers will come and they'll pass the elements. And we'll ask, would you just hold them and we will take them together. The worship team, they're just going to come up. uh, They'll just play um, some instruments in the background. And then I'll come and lead us and we'll close our time with a a song uh, at the end. So, Um, let me do this. I want to pray for us and then we will take uh, the Lord's Supper together. Father, what a gift. 
What a gift that you understand what it means that we are awaiting people. We've tasted your goodness. We've seen you fulfill your promises. And yet here we are waiting for the fullness of those promises. And we wait with So would you remind us in the middle of our desperation, in the middle of our need, in the middle of our having longings for a new heavens and new earth, would you now, as we come to this table, remind us that we wait in hope of the day when we will be around your table and we will be in perfect safety in your presence. Your glory filling the whole earth. Oh, how we long for that day. Would we come now to receive from you the perseverance to wait in hope. Meet us now, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen.